Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak tells us what's happening in Congress. Action in Congress this week is going to be dominated by two signature issues, both involving trade. The first is something that the Obama administration has long been waiting for, and that is trade promotion authority, an effort that would allow the president ease in negotiating trade deals with foreign nations or groups of foreign nations. The White House has argued for a long time that it will enhance trade and create jobs, him having this authority. And many in Congress, particularly in the Republican Party, want to grant the president this power. However, last week, negotiations broke down and a bill that would have facilitated this move to grant trade promotion authority failed in what was a dramatic embarrassment both for House Republican leadership and for the Obama administration. House Republican leaders are now working to get enough Republican and Democratic support to pass legislation for the president to sign, but the next week will be quite telling in whether this will move forward or whether it will be a failure for the Obama administration. The second issue involves the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. The charter for this bank expires on June 30th, and many in Congress and many in the private sector want the reauthorization of this bank. Essentially, the bank provides a series of loans or guarantees that facilitate the export of American goods into foreign markets for them to be sold. Opposition, however, has come about uh, both among Republicans and among Democrats in the reauthorization of this bank saying that it is wasteful federal spending. Negotiations, just like on trade promotion authority, are ongoing, are divisive, and are unclear whether they will actually result in the outcome that the Obama administration and the private sector largely wants. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Jean-Marie Gaynor president and CEO of International Crisis Group, an independent nonprofit and non-governmental organization committed to preventing and resolving deadly conflict. Mr. Gano is also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings and was, from 2000 to 2008, the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping Operations at the United Nations, the longest head of UN peacekeeping. He is the author of a new memoir published by the Brookings Institution Press titled The Fog of Peace, a Memoir of International Peacekeeping in the 21st Century. Jean-Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to ask you about the title, The Fog of Peace. It seems like it's a play on Clausewitz's The Fog of War. Yes, because more and more we see that the separation between war and peace is not as clear-cut as it used to be. We have many situations which are really a gray area where there is neither real peace nor full war. That's one thing. And the other point is that peace may be defined in many ways. How, how good has a peace to be, to be uh, really peace? And so I called the book Fog of Peace because I thought it would convey the sense of uncertainty that is a hallmark of conflict today. And it's, a, it's a really fascinating read, and I think largely because it's a memoir. Can you explain how uh, this idea came about to write a memoir of your time? Well, you know, I thought when I was uh, running peacekeeping at the United Nations, I felt it was very important to to convey the texture of of things, that 
the theory of peacekeeping, there have been many good books on the on which analyze the abstraction of peacekeeping. I think what I wanted to convey was really the uncertainties, the fact that you operate in an environment where you will know only in hindsight whether you took the right decisions. And a memoir for that is a much better way to, to convey. And the, do you feel like the gap between uh, your service at the UN and in this time, it's about six years, was that about the right amount of time to kind of get a hold of, of your experience there? Yes, but that's uh, it's a very good question. I. You know, you need time to make sense of the confusion of action. And as uh, I was writing the book, gradually uh, it came to it came together because I had the distance required to to go beyond the day-to-day um, uh, narrative of what I had done and to 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 find a few themes that bring together the the various conflicts I was involved in. I do want to uh, dive into the book a little bit more, but first I kind of want to set the, the table on peacekeeping generally for the listeners. Peacekeeping is, in a lot of people's minds, uh, from the UN peacekeeping, is the, the blue helmet wearing soldiers um, deployed around the world. There are, this is according to a peacekeeping fact sheet I downloaded from the UN, there are 16 current peacekeeping operations around the world today. There are over 125,000 uniformed and civilian personnel participating. 120 countries uh, have contributed uniform personnel, and sadly, there have been over 3,300 fatalities in peace operations since 1948. And uh, two of the oldest peace operations were actually started right around the foundation of the United Nations, the one in um, the Middle East and the one in Kashmir. Yeah. Um, can you can you talk about what is peacekeeping? What are, what are the is it beyond the blue helmets that we see? Yes, peacekeeping, of course, it's a huge military enterprise. I mean, having more than 100,000 uh, personnel uh, deployed, uh, uniform personnel, I mean, 125,000, that includes the civilians. Uh, that's a big military operation. And people sometimes call me the Minister of Defense of the United Nations. But it's actually quite misleading because it's, it's a military enterprise that has an essential political component. And... The peacekeepers at the United Nations, they are there to support a political process. And if you, if you look at peacekeeping just as a military enterprise, you, you, you miss the essence of peacekeeping, which is how do you support a political process between parties who have been at war? Right. Um, let's go into some of the specifics. You, you talk about uh, operations in Cote d'Ivoire and Darfur and many other places around the world. Can you talk about what, uh, during your time as head of UN Peacekeeping, what was one of your toughest operations? Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's the place where in some ways I felt uh, I made the biggest difference and it's the place where I felt I would have liked to make much more of a difference. Uh, when, uh, when there was a crisis in 2003 where in Ituri, which is a, a northeastern district of uh, this huge country, there was real potential for massive uh, killings. Uh, it it could have been uh, an, another instance of, of genocide. Like in Rwanda. Like in Rwanda, near, just across uh, the, the border, actually. Uh, it did not happen, I think, because the UN reacted quickly and efficiently with the support of a temporary uh, multinational force led by France. It could have happened. So... And those weeks were the longest in my life. And so in that sense, I'm very proud of what the UN has done in Congo. 
But at the same time, I'm enormously frustrated because, frankly, today, the politics of Congo have not been transformed. The institutions of Congo remain very weak, and so the possibility of uh, further atrocities is still very much there. And that's, uh, after 15 years of engagement in Congo, that's, in a way, that's a failure. It depends how you, de you define success. Certainly success in preventing many people getting killed, failure in having a transformative impact on the country. Are, are UN peacekeepers still in Congo? Very much so. It's the biggest uh, peacekeeping mission still. Um, and going back to what you were saying about uh, uh, political versus military, this isn't a case where there is a crisis unfolding in the world and the UN decides to send in the blue-helmeted troops. It's not like that, is it? You mean uh, in Congo? Uh, or anywhere, really, in, in terms of uh, peacekeeping operations. There has to be some political... Uh, conversation that happens, some political agreements that happen. The uh, a peacekeeping mission is deployed when the Security Council decides uh, to deploy a peacekeeping mission. So you need an agreement in the Security Council. You need the a majority of the 15 mem members of the Security Council and no veto of one of the five permanent uh, members. And so a peacekeeping mission that happens when there is that agreement in the Security Council and also when the country concerned agrees to it. Uh, you don't, although you can have what in the jargon of the UN, a Chapter 7 mission that in principle does not require the consent of a state. In reality, peacekeeping missions are deployed uh, when uh, the host country agrees to it. And you, you tease out a really interesting contradiction in your book uh, that I'm thinking of because of what you're saying about the host country. The UN is founded on the basis of uh, sovereignty amongst all the member states. And yet in today's age, we see um, threats from fragile states that perhaps their sovereignty is compromised uh, by civil war, by terrorists, by some other crisis. And so how can a state like that participate in the decision to have uh, peacekeeping intervention in its country? And how, do the rest, how does the rest of the body deal with that kind of fundamental tension that sovereignty is compromised? Well, you, you have situations where the state, for all practical purposes, has collapsed. Uh, when the UN deployed in Liberia, Liberia was not in, in a position to say yes or no. And so, in a way, the consent of the host country was, uh, was a formality. You have countries which are, which are in, big, in a big crisis, like uh, Sudan, Darfur, uh, and there, the situation is much more complicated because, indeed, in Sudan, you cannot say there's no state. There's a very strong state in Sudan, but there's a strong state that is in, uh, in a major crisis in one part of the country. And so you need the consent of the state, uh, and at the same time, the state is not able to really uh, control a part of the country. And sometimes you would want to deploy the, the, the mission without the consent of that country. That was the view of the United States and the United Kingdom uh, in, in Darfur uh, for the UN. But it couldn't be done because the authorities in Khartoum would not agree to it. And so you have to accept that in some situations you will have to bend. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't work. There's also a, um, a challenge that you mentioned in your book, a criticism that some have that peacekeeping operations in a country prolong the conflict because they allow the parties involved to not resolve their political differences. Well, I mean, many years ago, uh, Ed Ludwak wrote uh, a piece, I mean, Give War a Chance. Uh, 
I I disagree with that because I think the cost of any conflict is so much higher than even a frozen uh, conflict that it's preventing violence to erupt or to continue uh, is is always the best option. That being said, I do see how sometimes a UN mission, if it's not accompanied by strong political engagement, then gets stuck. And that's the challenge in a number of places uh, today. Um, mentioned Democratic Republic of the Congo, certainly that's the case. I think if you pull the mission out of Congo, you would have a renewed, you, you will have renewed violence. But at the same time, the mission is not really uh, moving the country uh, forward. So that's a real uh, dilemma that the UN is facing more and more. Well, do you think that in this day and age, we could witness another Rwanda-like genocide? I think, sadly, it is possible because most, I mean, most massive violence uh, doesn't start all at once. Uh, and so you know only once it is too late uh, that the preventive action could have stopped it. And the international community reacts generally too late. Uh, it's Rwanda, for instance, is a case where if there had been decisive action with very limited number of troops very early on, possibly the, the genocide could have been avoided. Once it spirals out of control, uh, to stop that is a major military operation. And then there is no appetite uh, for, for that, all the more so as one can never assess really what would be the consequences of a major military operation. You look at a situation like Syria uh, today, I think more decisive engagement early on in the Syrian crisis might have stopped the um, descent of Syria into the abyss. Today, would a major military operation really transform things? Not so sure because the situation is so fragmented. Uh, that uh, it's very hard to see how you apply military force in a decisive manner. Well, and you wouldn't apply uh, military force under the auspices of the UN without some kind of, well, Security Council resolution. Indeed. Which uh, we've seen a lot of disagreement in the Security Council about what to do with Syria. Yes, and the, the, divi the deepening division of the Security Council, it's led to paralysis on Syria, it's led to paralysis on Ukraine, uh, it uh, blocked, uh, it was in evidence in Iraq. In some cases, it has given space to the UN. Uh, in Kosovo, the Security Council was deeply divided and the UN in a way took the initiative and, uh, and helped. But I think in situations of open conflict like Syria, uh, the international community is paralyzed. And one has to think twice whether in the face of uh, mass atrocities, one should uh, break international law to stop those atrocities. This was a debate at the time of um, the, the Kosovo bombing campaign. Uh, should we contribute to more erosion of international law? Uh, I think it's risky at this stage. Yeah, those are tough questions. Uh, let me switch gears a little bit from UN peacekeeping operations in conflict zones to say zones that are hit by natural disaster. Haiti is, is an example mm. here. There's a giant earthquake in Haiti. There's a UN peacekeeping mission there. Can you talk about when the UN puts peacekeeping troops or, or operations in a country like Haiti? 
Well, in Haiti, the, the, the initial deployment of the United Nations was really to fix the politics of uh, Haiti. And uh, until the earthquake, I must say, there was some progress in what is a very difficult uh, situation. The earthquake came, all the uh, gang leaders who were in jail, I mean, the, the jail was destroyed, they all uh, ran away, uh, and the massive the massive challenge for any country that this huge earthquake created, which any country would have had a hard time uh, to to address, to be honest. In the case of Haiti, uh, with a dysfunctional uh, state, uh, that really brought Haiti back to uh, square to square one. Uh, and, and there in Haiti, I think it's a good example of a situation where indeed, you need uh, some troops, but you need more police than troops because the violence is more about uh, gangs than uh, about real uh, military uh, challenges. But more important than police, you need uh, a state that has the trust of its people, and that's a political process. And what I find terribly difficult in Haiti, and in a way an illustration of some of the problems we have seen in peacekeeping operations is if you don't have a critical mass in the elite of the country that really wants to transform the country, it's very difficult to move things forward. Because what you have in Haiti is that you have a number of people who have adapted to what is a dysfunctional state, who benefit from a, a, a dysfunctional uh, state. They know that if there was a more transparent state, if there was a functioning judiciary, that would open up uh, the island to other investors, uh, to competition. Uh, having a dysfunctional country protects against that competition. And so if you do not align the interests of, the peop of uh, that elite with the interests of the country, whatever force you deploy uh, is going to be very hard. And that's what we see in Haiti today. Tell me what you think uh, one of your best outcomes was during your time as head of UN peacekeeping. Well, I think what we have seen in, uh, in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, two um, relatively small peacekeeping missions where there was decisive action early on, uh, th these, were, these were good uh, outcomes. Uh, I think Kosovo has been a good outcome. Uh, when you think of how paralyzed the international community was, and today Kosovo is, a, is an independent country not recognized by all countries, but it's not uh, the most uh, functional country in Europe, but certainly the potential for violence was there uh, in 2008 uh, when the unilateral declaration of independence uh, came out. Uh, and I think the UN managed to transition Kosovo uh, without a major crisis. And I think that's, uh, that's a great success in Europe. But what it means is that to have a success, you need real political commitment, which was the case in Kosovo, and sometimes real military commitment, which was the case in Sierra Leone, which was the case in Liberia and two small countries. In situations like Sudan... South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you have a weak political commitment and you have troops that may look, uh, it may look like a big contingent, but to have 20,000 troops in a country the size of Western Europe, it's nothing. And so weak political commitment, weak military commitment, 
no success. The, uh, the book is a, a memoir of your time as head of UN peacekeeping, and it's about international peacekeeping, but it's also a lot about a lot more than that. It's about your overall expert views about UN and, and the politics and global security in general. What would you say are uh, some of the top messages of the book? Well, you know, peacekeeping is always a, a reflection of the state of the international system. During the Cold War, peacekeeping was essentially about preventing local conflict from reaching the, uh, uh, the global east-west uh, conflict uh, level. Uh, today, peacekeeping is much more uh, a reflection of the fact that the legitimacy of states is being challenged, that power, the problem is not to balance power with power, as was the case during the Cold War, is to have identifiable centers of power. You see a diffusion of power, a dilution of power that makes any uh, any political process much more difficult. And so my book, in a way, is about this transformation of power in the world and our institutions, which are institutions, organizations of states, uh, like the United Nations, how they have to adapt to cope uh, with that. Because states remain uh, the hope, the, the dream of most people. They want a state that protects them. But at the same time, the Westphalian uh, definition of the state, a t monopoly uh, of force on a well-identified territory, I mean, to combine the Treaty of Westphalia with Max Weber, uh, that uh, definition is being eroded every day. Uh, the self-evident nature of a national community is no more self-evident uh, because people move around, because a lot of countries were born out of the decolonization process and the legitimacy of the decolonization fight is no more there. Or they were born out of the breakup of empires like the Ottoman Empire. And we see the question of legitimacy in the Middle East. Uh, that is now an open question. Do you create states along sectarian lines? Do you create them uh, along a uh, sense of national identity? Uh, all that is uncertain, and I think in the case of the Middle East, it's going to be a generational uh, effort. It's not going to be resolved uh, in next year or next in the next five years. It's a 20-year effort. When you look at the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, you have a whole set of states uh, there. Some had a clear identity, like the Baltic states, uh, but it, is it the case uh, for Belarus? Uh, is it the case for Ukraine? Well, maybe now the confrontation with Russia is creating a national identity in Ukraine. Uh, but that's that means a lot of violence. Is it the case in Central Asia? So you have big chunks of the world where the whole question of what is the foundation of a state is now uh, under stress. And in a way, my book is about that and how the international community is, is trying to find a path that will avoid centuries of violence because we all say how wonderful it is now to have uh, a, a Europe at peace. But what one forgets is that the nation states in Europe are the product of uh, centuries of wars. They were not self-evident communities in the beginning. And so the question is really, can we have a shortcut for all the countries that were created in the last uh, 60, 70 years. 
we don't i don't want to i don't wouldn't wish them uh the european experience uh that's uh, especially in an age of nuclear weapons and much more effective ways of killing than we ever had in past history that's why i think giving war a chance is not the answer well that is a fascinating set of issues um thank you jean marie very much for your your expertise and your time today i appreciate it thank you Learn more about Jean-Marie Gaino and his work at crisisgroup.org and learn more about his memoir, The Fog of Peace, on our website at brookings.edu. My thanks to producer Zach Colzer, our artist Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. Also thanks to Carrie Engel and the Brookings Press for helping put this interview together. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. <laughs>